Hey guys, welcome to Grifter, a brand new podcast about famous con artists, scammers and fraudsters who live by the rule of fake it till you make it. If stories about glamour, subterfuge and deception are your kind of thing, then this podcast is perfect for you. I'm your host Sonali Vergis and today we're going to talk about Cassie Chadwick, aka Elizabeth Bickley, a woman who in late 19th century Canada deceived two unsuspecting husbands and ran a sham fortune-telling business. She hatched her most famous scam when she convinced an associate of her highly respected physician husband that she was the illegitimate daughter of steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, at the time one of the world's richest men. On the basis of this claim, she ended up defrauding several American banks out of millions of dollars. Newspaper accounts of the time even described her as one of America's greatest con artists. In the spring of 1902, a refined, well-dressed woman by the name of Cassie Chadwick traveled by train from Cleveland to New York City. She then hailed a cab to Holland House, an internationally renowned hotel at the corner of 30th Street and 5th Avenue, known for its glittering banquet hall and $350,000 wine cellar. Cassie had a stern, unsmiling mouth and a nest of brown hair that she wore up in a loose bun. Her eyes had a remarkable hypnotic intensity about them. She spoke with a mild lisp that appeared to impart a gentle reliability to her every word. Upon arriving at the hotel, she waited impatiently in the lobby, tapping her high-buttoned shoes on the smooth marble floor, carefully observing the men that strolled by in their bowler hats and dark coats. She was looking for one man in particular, James Dillon, a prominent lawyer and an associate of her husband's. She spotted him, standing by himself, and walked towards him, taking care to gently graze his arm as she passed. James pardoned himself and was surprised to see Cassie, who feigned astonishment. She exclaimed it was a delightful coincidence to run into him in New York, so far away from home. She mentioned she was in town for a short period, on some business. She was on her way to her father's house and asked if Mr. Dillon would be so kind as to escort her there. Dillon happily obliged and hailed an open carriage. Cassie gave the driver the address. 2 East 91st Street at 5th Avenue. And so off they went, chatting away in the carriage, until they arrived at a four-storey mansion belonging to the steel magnate Andrew Carnegie. Dylan could barely contain his incredulity. Surely Cassie wasn't referring to Andrew Carnegie when she mentioned her father. What business did she have at the home of the famous tycoon? While Dylan remained in the carriage, Cassie ascended the stairs to the front door and politely requested to speak to the housekeeper. She wound up spending nearly half an hour in the Carnegie household. She eventually emerged from the mansion, holding a large brown envelope 
and climbed back into the carriage. Dylan, who had been resisting the urge to pose the question he so desperately wanted an answer to, ultimately gave in and asked if her father really was Andrew Carnegie. Cassie raised a gloved finger to her lips and asked him for his discreetness in the matter. She confirmed that she was, in fact, Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter and handed him the envelope, which contained a pair of promissory notes for $250,000 and $500,000 respectively, signed by Carnegie himself. She also possessed notes for securities valued at a total of $5 million. Further, she mentioned she was to inherit $400 million upon Carnegie's death. She added that Carnegie was paying her millions of dollars to keep silent about her ties to him, for he was ashamed. She swore James to secrecy. No one must know of her parentage. However, she knew very well that this was a secret so fantastic and brazen that James wouldn't be able to hold it in for very long. If he were to reveal this information to prominent businessmen and bankers in Cleveland and New York, Cassie would have no problem obtaining the credibility she needed to persuade banks to give her loans. In reality, Cassie never met Andrew Carnegie that night. Upon being admitted into the mansion and presented to the housekeeper, Cassie pretended to be looking to hire a maid named Hilda Schmidt. She said she was told the maid worked for the Carnegie household. Carnegie's housekeeper was puzzled. She claimed that no one by that name worked for the Carnegies. Cassie protested. Was she certain that the housekeeper was 100% sure of that? She rattled off details about Hilda, about her background, about her physical description. Still, the housekeeper insisted that there was a misunderstanding. Cassie decided to back down. She thanked the housekeeper profusely, complimented the spotlessness of the parlour, and let herself out. On the way out, she pulled from her coat a large brown envelope the same one she'd handed to a curious James Dillon. Hilda was a fictional character she'd made up to gain access to the Carnegie household. It was all a ruse, a machination, designed to make for a convincing story for James Dillon. as Elizabeth Bigley and known to her family simply as Betty. Our dear Cassie Chadwick was raised on a small farm in Ontario, Canada. Her father was a section boss on the Great Western Railway. When she was a little girl, Betty lost her hearing in one year and developed a speech impediment. As a result, she grew eerily distant and quiet and her classmates at school turned on her finding her to be peculiar, different, odd. Her sister Alice said that Cassie often seemed as though she were in a trance, sitting in silence for hours, unable to see or hear anything that existed outside of her mind. After bouts of extensive silence, Betty would appear disoriented and bewildered, 
like she'd just been hypnotized and only just woken up from her own spell. She often refused to discuss her thoughts with anyone. Her condition meant that she would only speak a few words at a time. And this taught her to choose her words wisely. Alice sometimes caught Betty practicing family members' signatures, writing their names down over and over again to perfect the curves and the grooves. Little did she suspect that Betty had been honing a skill that would come in very handy in the future. Around the age of 14, Betty concocted and hatched her very first scheme. She wrote a letter to a bank in Woodstock in Ontario, stating that an unknown uncle had died and left her some money. The dubious notice of inheritance appeared genuine enough to convince the bank, which issued cheques allowing her to spend the money in advance. However, the bank eventually discovered that the accounts from which the money was meant to arrive were simply non-existent. Betty was arrested, but because of her age, she was let off with a warning. Around the age of 22, Betty began to pose as an heiress in what would later become her trademark scam. Using her savings, she purchased an expensive letterhead and other stationery. She then wrote a letter to herself from a fictitious attorney in London, Ontario, notifying her that a philanthropist had died and left her an inheritance of $15,000. To create this image of wealth, she printed business cards that resembled those of the social elite. Hers read, quote, Miss Bigley, heiress to $15,000. The business cards would simply enhance her credibility and allow her to spend this inheritance. Her plan involved scamming unsuspecting local merchants. She would glide into shops, choose an expensive item, and write a check for an amount that exceeded the price of the item. She'd then request the merchants to pay her the difference between the cost of the item and the value of the check in cash. She would casually supply the fake business card to anyone who questioned her motives. After all, why would a young woman have in her possession a card that showed she was an heiress, if it weren't true? At the time, Betty's sister Alice had married a carpenter and settled down in Cleveland. Betty moved to her sister's new home with promises that she would only stay as long as it took to launch herself. Instead of looking for a job as a teacher or at a factory, Betty stayed inside her sister's home and estimated the value of everything in it, from the furniture to the artwork to the cutlery. She then used the furnishings as collateral to take out a bank loan to fund her purchases. When Alice's husband discovered that Betty had pawned all of his furniture, Betty was forced to leave and she moved to another neighborhood in the city where she met one Dr. Wallace S. Springsteen. The doctor was smitten and they were married before a justice of the peace in December 1883. The Cleveland Plain Deer, a popular newspaper at the time, printed a photograph of the newlyweds. Within days, the couple were inundated with demands from furious merchants who claimed to have been ripped off by Betty. The doctor begrudgingly paid off his wife's debts, all the while fearing that his own credit was on the line, 
and eventually kicked her out. Their marriage lasted all of 12 days. Betty decided to reinvent herself and soon went by the name of Madame Marie Rosa. Under this name, she lodged in various boarding houses across Cleveland and continued to swindle local merchants, all the while honing and developing her scamming skills. As Madame Marie Rosa, Betty travelled through Erie, Pennsylvania, charming the locals and claiming to be the niece of Civil War General William T. Sherman. She would sometimes pretend to be very ill as well. Shockingly, she would extract blood from her gums to trick people into believing that she was suffering from a hemorrhage. The good people of Erie felt sorry for her and helped raise money to send her back to Cleveland. When they wrote to her asking for a repayment of the money they'd raised for her, they received remorseful letters stating that Marie had tragically passed two weeks previously. As Madame Rosa, Betty established a fortune-telling business. She ended up marrying a Trumbull County farmer, and when that fell apart, she married the businessman C.L. Hoover and had a son by him, whom she named Emile. The boy was sent back to Ontario to be raised by her parents. Hoover died in 1888, leaving Betty an estate worth $50,000. Following Hoover's demise, Betty moved to Toledo and assumed a new identity, Madame Lydia de Vere. She continued working as a clairvoyant and extracted $10,000 from a client named Joseph Lamb after agreeing to serve as his personal financial advisor. Along with numerous other victims, Joseph claimed that Lydia had hypnotic powers, hypnotics being a popular belief among millions at the time of the 19th century. Lydia forged numerous promissory notes for several thousand dollars and requested Joseph to cash the checks at his bank in Toledo. Joseph was a highly respected individual with an excellent reputation. He seemed ready to do whatever Lydia asked of him. He ended up cashing promissory notes worth $40,000 before the banks caught on and both Betty and Joseph were arrested. Later, Joseph was to call Betty, quote, one of the vilest, most dangerous women that modern history has ever known. Joseph, perceived to be an innocent victim caught in Cassie's web of lies, was acquitted of all charges. But Betty was convicted of forgery and sentenced to nine and a half years in the Ohio Penitentiary. When in prison, Betty continued to tell people that she was a fortune teller. At one point, she told the prison warden that he would lose $5,000 in a business deal gone bad, which he did, and also that he would die of cancer, which he also did. She heavily campaigned for her release, emphasizing her remorse and promising to change. After serving less than half of her sentence, she was pardoned by Governor William McKinley, who would later become President of the United States. Following her release from prison, 
Betty returned to Cleveland as Cassie L. Hoover. There was never any mention what the L actually stood for, and married another doctor, Leroy S. Chadwick, who was a wealthy widower and a descendant of one of Cleveland's oldest and richest families. Cassie and Leroy supposedly met at a bordello. Some sources say that Cassie owned the bordello, which was said to be near Westside, and other sources say that it was a different bordello on Euclid Avenue. Cassie assured Leroy that she was merely an etiquette instructor for the girls. She presented herself as a refined widow who ran a respectable boarding house for women. Convincing the old doctor, she moved into the doctor's lavish residence on Euclid Avenue's Millionaire's Row. Her young son, Emile, was allegedly being cared for by women at the brothel. Cassie tried in vain to impress her prominent neighbors and to fit in with the social elite. Rumors swirled among Chadwick's friends and neighbors, which included the likes of U.S. Senator Marcus Hanna and John Hay, who had been one of Abraham Lincoln's private secretaries. They whispered that Cassie had previously run a brothel and that the old doctor had been one of her clients. Within three years of her marriage to Chadwick, Cassie had earned herself a glossy reputation for lavishness. Everybody knew of her prodigal entertainments, her trunk of jewels that included diamonds and pearls worth more than $100,000, her benefactions and her fine Persian and Oriental rugs, and most peculiarly, her $9,000 pipe organ. She ordered custom-made hats, dresses and coats from New York, sculptures from East Asia, and furniture from Europe. During one Christmas season, she supposedly gifted eight pianos to her friends. She also allegedly purchased 56 diamond rings from Ryries and presented them as gifts to her friends in Toronto. She wished only to purchase items that were top dollar. Anything cheap or inexpensive was simply and utterly unacceptable to her. Mrs. Chadwick's taste, however luxurious, sometimes ran into the inexplicable. There was a perpetual motion clock under glass on an inlaid table and a golden bird that sang in a golden chain when one pressed a golden lever. In the shadowy background of his wife's glamorous lifestyle, Dr. Chadwick remained a quiet, solid and well-established man. However, he soon began objecting to her extravagance, driving her to borrow her against her alleged $400 million inheritance from Carnegie. Cassie's financial associates never suspected that the refined Mrs. Leroy S. Chadwick would be capable of swindling them with lies and deception. After James Dillon told all of Cleveland about Cassie's shocking connection to Andrew Carnegie, bankers were more than eager to offer her loans of up to $1 million, some of them with outrageously large interest rates. She borrowed large sums of money, never less than $10,000, from dozens of banks across Cleveland and New York. She would take out several loans, repaying the first with money from the second, the second with money from the third, and so on. 
Her base of operations was Cleveland's Wade Park Bank. She entrusted it with her counterfeit promissory notes from Carnegie. She persuaded Charles Beckwith, the president of Citizens National Bank, to grant her a loan of $240,000, a loan allegedly four times the entire capitalization of the small bank. Beckwith also granted her an additional $100,000 from his personal account. Cassie's fraudulent activities eventually caused Beckwith's bank to collapse and devastated his personal wealth. Cassie also received a sum of $800,000 from a Pittsburgh steel mogul, who possibly had been an acquaintance of Carnegie's. She received a check for $79,000 from Herbert Newton, an investment banker she'd connected with via the prestigious Euclid Avenue Baptist Church. Newton provided her with a personal check for $25,000 to $100,000. He looked on with delight as Cassie signed a promissory note for $190,800 without so much as batting an eyelid at the outrageous interest. To this day, the full extent of Cassie's frauds remains unknown, but many historians seem to believe that it comes to $633,000, about $16.5 million in today's money. By November 1904, Newton realized that Cassie had no intention of repaying the loans, let alone any interest, and filed a suit in Cleveland's federal court. Cassie denied all the charges and also denied the claim that she'd ever had any relationship with Andrew Carnegie. In March 1905, a grim-faced jury wasted no time finding Cassie Chadwick guilty of conspiracy to defraud a national bank. She was sentenced to 10 years in the penitentiary and died behind bars on October 10, 1907. She was eventually laid to rest in her hometown. Interestingly enough, Andrew Carnegie himself attended Cassie's trial and later had the opportunity to inspect the infamous promissory notes. After the trial, he supposedly stated, quote, if anybody had seen this paper and then really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered. He pointed out the errors in spelling and punctuation. He then added, why... I have not signed a note in the last 30 years. The whole scandal could have been avoided if anyone had bothered to ask me. And that's a wrap on this episode of Grifter. As a disclaimer, I should add that there are several conflicting accounts on Cassie's history and life of crime. For example, some accounts state that upon leaving Carnegie's household, Cassie pretended to trip and fall before the carriage, dropping the brown envelope. And that was how Dylan came to learn about the promissory notes. Also, some sources say that Cassie was one among eight brothers and sisters, while other sources say she had four siblings. Finally, the timeline of her life is somewhat muddled. I've tried to research and put together the most consistent account of Cassie's life and her alleged scams, and I hope I've done it justice. 
Thank you for listening to Grifter. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and subscribe and leave us a review. Links to the sources I used to research this episode are included in the description. Until next time. Thank you.